0: I am convinced that one of the many reasons people often give up on their faith is that they have made the mistake of equating following their heart with following Jesus. Basically, a lot of people have a picture in their heads of what a victorious Christian life looks like. Now, let me give you just a few examples. Maybe you will uh, be some successful entrepreneurial a dude who basically donates all your wealth to missions. Maybe you will be a famous celebrity who gives all glory to God after you've sold millions of records. Uh, Maybe you will be the pastor of a massive church that leads thousands to Christ. But maybe that's too grandiose. Let me go a little more street level on this. Maybe it looks like having the perfect godly spouse and raising a generation of perfect faithful children who will live out those other dreams for you, right? I mean, what what could possibly be wrong with that? I get it. I want that stuff too. Well, at least the kids stuff. Um, At least good kids. But here's the thing. Nothing's wrong with any of those things. All those things are good. And if for some reason that happens to you, praise God. But here's the thing most of our lives really don't look like that. Let's just be honest. Look, guys, I wish you all a life of abundant blessings. But consider this for one second. What if none of those things happen? What if it doesn't even come close? What then? See, for many people, this leads them to despair. We assume God, because God didn't come through in the way we expected him to, that God, therefore, doesn't have a plan for us. Sadly, as I said, this will, I've seen too many people that this leads them to actually abandon their faith that they once cherished so deeply. Um, I was a youth pastor for years, and worked with youth for, I don't know, how many years. I've seen generations of kids who've made big decisions to follow Christ. We're really zealous about their faith, and you find them somewhere in their mid 20s, and they could care less about Jesus. And I believe that for, for a lot of people, the reason is they had an expectation, and when reality didn't meet it, even if their expectation was a good thing, a godly thing, they leave their faith behind. So, what I hope you'll understand today is this, guys is that even if none of your life plans work out the way you want them to, that doesn't mean God's plans have failed. So, for the past two weeks, we've been looking at the last chapters of Luke's gospel. Basically, we're looking at uh, the last hours leading up to the cross. Now, one of the more prominent themes you see throughout Luke's entire gospel account is the idea of the fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, We see this throughout the entire book. We see this in two ways. Often something happens and Jesus or the author himself will connect it to an Old Testament prophecy. For example, early on in his ministry, we hear the story of Jesus going into the synagogue and reading this prophecy from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord then Jesus proceeds to tell the crowds today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing so the appearance of Jesus the king in the synagogue teaching them was a fulfillment of that prophecy from Isaiah Now that's one way we see this the second way in which we see this is by Jesus calling his shots in advance Basically, he tells people what's going to happen before it ever happens. He see, uh, we see in this him predicting his own betrayal, as we saw in the past weeks, his own rejection and arrest long before it happens. So we find that Jesus not only fulfills prophecy, he also gives prophecy. Clearly, Jesus is a prophet. Now, while this is true, Jesus is, shows himself to be more than just a prophet. Specifically, with the way he speaks of things in advance and shows the details and knowledge of things in a way that no one else did. Jesus talks like no prophet ever talked, okay? He describes the intimate details of people's lives, even their very thoughts. Jesus explains that he knows these things because of his unique relationship with God the Father. So, Jesus doesn't say, because the Lord told me. He says, I know, because the Father revealed it. So, in Luke chapter 10, verse 22, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one, who knows, the Son, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, Jesus says he has authority to reveal God to people. Jesus' knowledge of all things, what some theologians have referred to as his foresight, is not just proof that he was a prophet. It's proof that he was something more. It's proof that he was God himself having authority over all things. For example, there's an interesting detail uh, where Jesus meets a disciple. And he says, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. That's not what a prophet does. That's what an omnipotent God does. An omniscient God, I should say. So far in our story, basically, Jesus has predicted three events that have yet to come true. One of the disciples will betray him, which we are told in advance was Judas. He was already scheming, even before the disciples find this out. Uh, We also learn that he will be counted among the criminals. Or, as Jesus puts it, numbered with the transgressors. And then third, we learn that Peter will deny that he even knows him. So today, what we're going to see is all those little dangling plot threads coming to conclusion, okay? All those things, that, all those things Jesus said were going to happen are going to happen in this uh, series of verses that we will see today. So, if you would, please turn in your, your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. And we start in verse 39. We start with a famous uh, story. Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 39. He came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Verse 45. When he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So, Jesus takes the disciples to his favorite spot, basically. This was his go-to place for prayer, apparently. And he takes them there and he says this in verse 40. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. So, what sort of temptation is that? Well, the disciples would be shortly tempted to abandon and deny Jesus. Ultimately, we'll see this in Peter, but it's more than just Peter here. All the disciples will be tempted to abandon Jesus. The word temptation here, it occurs uh, both at the beginning and the end of our story. So so this, this section begins and ends with temptation. It brings to mind the Lord's Prayer. Jesus himself said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, those two lines go together. Jesus taught his disciples to ask God, don't let me find myself in a situation where I am prone to abandon my faith. But if I find myself in such a a situation, please keep me from harm or evil. Evil in the Bible refers to the effects of sin. We might sometimes translate it harm. So Jesus is telling his disciples, you're going to need God's protection. So ask for it. Then Jesus goes off on his own and prays. Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Okay, what's the deal with the cup? Well... Frequently in the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, God's wrath is described as being a cup which would make the wicked which he would make the d- wicked drink as a sign of his judgment. So what's he saying here? Oh, for example, in Isaiah chapter 51 verse 17 we read, "Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering." So, Jesus is expressing his knowledge uh, about what is about to occur. The cup of God's wrath on sin is going to be Jesus's responsibility to drink. He will receive the full punishment of God against sinners and his response is sincere. God, if there's any other way, knowing what the cross entails, if there's any other way, let's do that instead. So this idea has been a problem for many people in different times and cultures. See, there were those who didn't like the idea of a Jesus who seemed so human, right? Like a Jesus who would actually say, like, God, if you have a plan B to the cross, I'll take option B. People didn't like this, especially in the early church. So what you find in the early church is there's people, uh, we'd call them heretics, coming up with ways. <laughs> that's what we call them. Coming up with ways to deny that Jesus really did suffer and die on the cross. Because the idea of a suffering Messiah was a problem. So they would make up all these crazy ideas like, well, Jesus was God in the flesh, but he ceased to be God in the flesh the moment he actually went to the cross. The Bible has none of that. Passages like this lay waste of such arguments. But nowadays it's the opposite. People are very fine with a human Messiah. What they don't, what they want to deny, is that Jesus was actually God in the flesh. They do this for a really simple reason, because a sovereign Jesus demands obedience. If He is our God, then He is our Lord over our lives, and pre- people really don't like the idea of someone being Lord over them. So you cannot miss the point of this. Here, the humanity and the divinity of Jesus are both on full display he knows exactly what's coming because he's divine and he doesn't want to suffer because he's human he proves his humanity and his desire to avoid the pain of the cross nonetheless he says Lord not my will but your will be done in other words if there's no other way I will take it God's silence on this lets us know that the response was no There is no other way. So Jesus' words ring true. Father, not my will, but your will be done. And so he submits to the will of the Father. Now, verses 43 and 44, by the way, I should note, uh, are not contained in some early manuscripts. So there's some disagreement about whether or not they were actually in the original text. Uh, Here's the good news about things like this. There's only a few of little textual discrepancies like this that we find. There's no key doctrine here. Basically, there's no new doctrine that's introduced. It doesn't change the meaning of the story. Uh, basically, what we find here is that it explains. It harkens back to the the appearance of angels strengthening him. Harkens back to the beginning w- uh, when Jesus was tempted, and we read that G- that angels came to him in the wilderness and strengthened him. So it could be it could be that that was in the original the original con uh, the original uh, manuscript. Uh, It could be that that was an addition by an author later uh, in order to uh, bring some clarity to that. Regardless, it doesn't change the meaning of the story. Jesus returns from praying to find his disciples asleep. Guys, I'll be honest, this is the simplest detail that's staring me right in the face. I missed it every time I've read this, and I've read this story well over a hundred times. I have always read this story and thought the disciples were like me, and like, I'm a just a dude who gets tired like for lack of a better term like i used to always when i I said it before i was a youth pastor i used to always tell my youth like they would always go hey can we do like an overnighter and i'd be like no i will fall asleep and crash a van like you guys don't understand when i'm sleepy i'm sleepy and i don't get like i do not care i cannot stop it i will fall asleep so i've always read the story and thought well the disciples were sleepy that's why they fell asleep but that's not the case the Bible actually tells us why they fell asleep. It says that they fell asleep because of sorrow or grief. Now, you ever had that situation? You ever just feel so emotionally exhausted after a situation that like you literally just want to fall face first on your bed and go to sleep for the rest of the day? That's the situation that led the disciples to fall asleep. They they know what Jesus has said, and they were overcome with grief, and so they fell asleep. So, Jesus wakes them, and he tells them to pray again. Now, is he being heartless to this? Like, Like I said, they're not just being lazy and sleepy. They're actually so, they're sad and grieved to the point where they're just like drained. They're just emotionally drained, and so they fall asleep. And he wakes them up, and he goes, what are you guys doing? Pray, pray, pray. Now, is he being heartless by doing this? Not at all. He just knows what lies ahead. See, there will be a time to mourn Jesus' death, but this isn't it. The disciples have the right response at the wrong time. See, there's a time when a soldier might need to fall asleep in a foxhole to get some sleep. It just isn't when the enemy's closing in on him. And that's the situation we find ourselves in right now. And so, so, so Jesus tells them, this is, it's not, he doesn't discard, discredit their emotions, but he says this isn't the right response. And then we find Jesus' betrayal and arrest in verse 47. Verse 47, it says, While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas. One of the twelve was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So, a couple of ways Luke highlights Judas' betrayal here. First off, he tells us that this is one, he reminds us, this is one of the twelve. In other words, one of Jesus' best friends, one of his inner circle that's actually coming up to betray him. And Judas is not being forced. We are told he is leading the crowds to Jesus. He's leading the way. Then he kisses Jesus, which Christ himself points out. Basically, this thing that would have been a sign of affection, Jesus is, Judas is using to betray Jesus. In other words, he's, what a way to st- he's saying, what a way to stab me in the back. Like he could have said, he's right there. Guy with the beard or something. The Bible says Jesus had a beard. But he could have said that. He said he could have said, it's that guy right there. Instead, he chose to get close to him and to embrace him and to give him a sign of affection in order to betray Jesus. Then the disciples ask if they should draw their swords. And this is a perfectly disciples kind of response. They go, Jesus, should we draw our swords? No, wait for a response. Chop. That's what they do. Literally, you go. they ask. No answer, they assume, and they go hacking. This is perfectly in line with some of the disciples' responses to things. Uh, Other gospel accounts let us know this is Peter who does this, and this is the most Peter thing that Peter has ever done. Okay, He takes the matter into his own hand, assuming that this is what he should do. And then Jesus heals the man's ear. Now, why does he do this? Well, most likely... It's because if, what Peter has just done by striking a temple servant's ear is he has given them evidence to, to make Jesus into the revolutionary they're all going to try and say he was. Not only that, it would mean the disciples themselves would be standing trial and probably dying right alongside him. See, the charge is Jesus is an insurrectionist. And so what it looks like, it's really easy if you go, look, we've got a, we've got a bloody sword and an ear. These are violent people. We need to put them to death. But by healing the man's ear, basically Jesus is doing away with the evidence against them and it allows the disciples to escape. So, Jesus then addressed the chief priests and those arresting them, calling them out for their cowardness. He uses this interesting phrase. He says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. What does that mean? Well, it's a way of, sp- it's, it points out a few things. One, it's, Acknowledging the fact that this is basically the moment where it looks like evil's winning, okay? If there was ever a time in history where it looked like evil had won, it's, that mo- it's this moment right here. It's the arrest and death of Jesus Christ. But the fact that he says this is your hour is also a way of reminding him, this is so temporary. Like, they have this hour. But Jesus is doing something of eternal significance. It's like he's saying, this is your moment. This is, the far, this, is, this is the farthest the power of darkness will ever get. And then last, we find Peter's denial in verse 54. So it says, They seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, Certainly this man was also with one of them, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So, first off, Peter gets a bad rap, guys, sometimes. See, sometimes we think that Peter was like the first to deny Jesus, it's the exact opposite. He's the only one who's still following behind. Jesus has been arrested. It's a dangerous situation. He cut a dude's ear off earlier. And he's still keeping behind with the crowds to see what's happening with Jesus. Guys, Peter isn't the first guy to abandon Jesus. He's the last one. And so as he comes behind them, he he basically keeps him with the crowds, and they're all in the the high priest's house. Uh, It's helpful to understand the layout of, like, what a person of prominence house would have looked at this time. Basically, everything in the house was built around a large center courtyard. So assume if your backyard or whatever was in the middle of your house and everything was kind of built around it. So they would basically take him to the high priest's house. They would have a a bit, we we read that he goes back and forth from houses throughout the course of this evening. Uh, They basically hold uh, some fake uh, trials to make some trumped up charges against him, and he's being uh, and, and all the while there's a whole group of people who are now congregating out in the center by a fire. So Peter tries to sneak in with the crowd uh, in, in order to understand the scenario, and it's Jesus was at uh, this time. Like I said, Jesus is being transported when people start noticing him. Aren't you that guy? No, no, I'm not. Are you sure you're not one of those guys? No, no, that's not me. At last, we we learn that clearly Peter had a thick accent because it's his Galilean, it's the fact that he's Galilean gives him away, meaning he wasn't good at faking a non Galilean accent. They're like, surely you're with him. You're a Galilean. He says, I don't know the man. The rooster crows, and what was most likely the case is if Jesus was between trials, the soldiers would have been sitting around the fire with the prisoner. And so what happens is, as, uh, what's happening here? What's the situation? Jesus isn't just denying that he, uh, Peter isn't just denying that he knows Jesus. He's denying Jesus to his face. He can see him. The rooster crows, their eyes lock, and Peter realizes something. Everything happened exactly as Jesus said it would. Now, keep in mind, Simon Peter probably thought he would show his faithfulness here. But every time he was given a chance to acknowledge Jesus, he feared for his own safety and denied him. At that point, Peter can no longer stand it. He leaves in tears, perhaps finally realizing that there is nothing he can do to stop this from happening. In the end, he, feels, he just feels useless. But thank God, Truth is, this is not the end of Peter's story by a long shot. Let that be a bit of comfort to us when we fail, guys. It wasn't the end of Peter's story, and it's not the end of yours either when you fail. God isn't done with you. It's just a sign that there's still work to be done in our lives. So, what do we do with this story? Well, here's the takeaway. Every week I like to give you the big idea. If you remember nothing else, remember this. The certainty of God's plans should dictate our response. See, everything happened just as Jesus said it would. Peter, though he probably had the best intentions, was unable to change it. Now, I don't say that as though it's bad news. It should bring us hope. See, what does the fulfillment of all these things teach us? That Jesus is trustworthy. Even in this horrible time... It shows us Jesus can be trusted. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Even though this is a horrible situation. It nonetheless confirms that Jesus deserves our faith. But because he declares the end from the beginning. And he has a plan. See, the the disciples struggled because they did not accept what Christ said would actually happen. They had a plan for their lives. They had a plan for how this was all going to go down, and it didn't look like the way God had in store for it. This shows us that while God's plan should determine our actions, sometimes, guys, our emotions are a terrible guide. See, it led the disciples to sleep when they should have prayed. It led Peter to draw his sword when he should have stood down. And it led him also to deny Jesus for fear of losing his own life. There's a proverb that if you've grown up in church, you've heard uh, probably a thousand times. It goes like this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And what else? Let's look at you guys. Gold star, gold star for Bible study for you this morning. <laughs> Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Our understandings of a given situation are both limited, but also because of our, uh, our, our finiteness. But also clouded by our feelings. Emotions are a good thing, guys. Don't get me wrong. They're just not always a reliable thing. The part, see, the proverb then reads, In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Sometimes your faith has to put your feelings in check. If not, then they will lead you down the path of destruction. This passage reminds us, and this proverb reminds us, trust in the Lord, he will teach you, he will guide you in the way that you should go. So here's the good news, though, guys. The story isn't over. The fulfillment of these things is the closest the power of evil would ever get to winning. And their are hours up. See, Paul wrote this to the Philippian church. I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Take note of this. God will finish what he started in you. If you can hear these words and you have breath still in your lungs, he isn't done with you yet. He didn't give up on Peter and he hasn't given up on you, no matter how you may feel right now. Even at his lowest point, Jesus was still Lord. He submitted himself to the Father's will for a very specific reason, so that you and I might never be turned away from God's presence again. See, where Jesus got a no response and silence to his prayer, we now now know that we can approach God. Because Jesus submitted to the Father's will, so that we would never be turned away from his presence. Guys, this is the power of God unto salvation. For everyone who trusts in Jesus. With that said, let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you. For your ways are good, even if we do not understand them. You are Lord, even in our darkest hour. Father God, help us to lean on you and not on our own understanding. Help us to acknowledge that even if life doesn't work out the way we thought it would, you are still good, and you are still trustworthy. Father, we cling to you this morning. Give us grace for the days ahead. Give us strength in our hour of weakness. Help us to be people who bear faithful witness of you. God, if this teaches us anything, it's the desperately we need you. Even our best intentions are prone to lead us astray if we do not submit to your word and your ways. As your people, O oh God, we submit to you this morning. Your ways are good and right and true, and we want to follow you. Be lifted up, we pray. Amen.